0: You would please turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 20, as tonight we'll be in Leviticus chapter 20. Moses writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says this Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also say to the sons of Israel, Any man from the sons of Israel or from the aliens sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his offspring to Molech so as to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. If the people of the land, however... Should ever disregard that man when he gives any of his offspring to Molech so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man and against his family, and I will cut off from among their people both him and all those who play the harlot after him by playing the harlot after Molech. As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people you shall consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for i the lord your god for i am the lord your god you shall keep my statutes and practice them i am the lord who sanctifies you if there is any one who curses his father or mother he shall surely be put to death he has cursed his father or his mother his blood guiltiness is upon him if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife One who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. If there is a man who lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there is a man who lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed incest, their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there is a man who lies with a male, as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there is a man who marries a woman and her mother, it is immorality. Both he and they shall be burned with fire, so that there will be no immorality in your midst. If there is a man who lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death. You shall also kill the animal. If there is a woman who approaches any animal to mate with it, you shall surely kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there is a man who takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, so that he sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace. And they shall be cut off in the sight of the sons of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He bears his guilt. If there is a man who lies with a menstruous woman and uncovers her nakedness, he has laid bare her flow and she has exposed the flow of her blood. Thus both of them shall be cut off from among their people. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, for such a one has made naked his blood relative. They will bear their guilt. If there is a man who lies with his uncle's wife, He has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They will bear their sin. They will die childless. If there is a man who takes his brother's wife, it is abhorrent. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They will be childless. You are therefore to keep all my statutes, all my ordinances, and do them, so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation, which I will drive out before you, For they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. Hence, I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it. A land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, between the unclean bird and the clean. And you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, Which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Now, a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Now, the The chapter that we've just read is closely connected with Leviticus chapter 18, which we considered a while back. Indeed, one commentator claimed that chapter 20 could be regarded as an appendix of chapter 18. And if you recall, chapter 18 was the chapter that uh, deals for the most part with sexual immorality of various types and lists out those relationships which would be immoral or incestuous were sexual union to be consummated and chapter 20 deals not entirely but in large part with the penalties for the violations of the laws of chapter 18. Now a couple of the penalties here in chapter 20 correspond to some of the material from chapter 19. It's been helpfully pointed out that many of the laws of chapter 20 consist of four parts, that is the offense, the penalty the reason, and the status of the offense. Now those four parts are not always ordered in the same way, but in many cases those four aspects of the law are present. So let me just point out a couple of examples of this. If you look at verse 12, first comes the offense. If there is a man who lies with his daughter-in-law, that's the offense. Then comes the penalty. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Then comes the reason. They have committed incest. And then lastly is the status of the offense. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And so we have the offense, the penalty, the reason, and the status of the offense. But then again, as I said, they're not always listed in that order. To consider an example in which the ordering is different, if you look down to verse 20, the first is the offense. If there is a man who lies with his uncle's wife, that's the offense. And then uh, then comes the reason for punishment, namely... He has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. The third thing is the status of the offense. They will bear their sin. And then fourth is the punishment. They will die childless. Now, not, not every law in the chapter has those four aspects, but that is a, a frequent pattern throughout the chapter where you have those four things listed out in regard to these laws. And so what we want to do tonight is walk through the chapter and look at the, the teaching of the chapter as it was given to the ancient Israelites, and then... Uh, I want to think a little bit about the issue of the civil legislation of the Mosaic Law. As we talk about the Mosaic Law, a lot of times we'll divide it up into, into those three aspects, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial. A lot of Leviticus so far, we've been looking at the ceremonial, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, and so on. Uh, some things, uh, like in, in chapter 18 and chapter 19, we've been looking at, at moral law, this, before us tonight, is, is civil law inasmuch as these are civil penalties for the violation of these laws. And so we want to think a little bit about the issue of the Mosaic law in its civil manifestation. So first, let's, let's walk through the chapter. Verses 2-5 through five deal with the issue of child sacrifice to Molech, and this corresponds with uh, what we see in chapter 18, verse 21. As seen in verse 2, this applies both to, to Israelites and also to any aliens who happen to be sojourning with them. There's to be no sacrifice of children to Molech. Now, Molech has been described as a deity who was believed to have resided in the underworld. He required child sacrifice as the price for the fertility of a family and prosperity of its land. In essence, child would be sacrificed for the purpose, so it seems, of the the well-being of the family, the well-being of the mother and father and the well-being of the rest of the family that would follow. The prosperity preachers talk about seed money, so to speak, one a situation in which one gives money for the purpose of gaining more money. And this seems to have been In a way, the case here, the giving of seed, the giving of offspring for the purpose of obtaining more future offspring as well as bountiful prosperity in general. You sacrifice something, a child, now so that you can be more successful, more prosperous in the long run. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound familiar at all? The secular abortion of modern times does not bear a one-to-one resemblance with Molech worship, for sure, but there's, there's certainly some overlap, like sacrifice now so that you can be more successful in, a, in the long run. Kill a person now, take an innocent life now, so that you can be more successful in the long run. In addition to the taking of an innocent life, which occurs in our context and did occur in theirs also, there's also... the the issue of the explicitly idolatrous overtones here in the ancient world which are generally lacking in our context thus the offense is described in verse 3 as defiling the Lord's sanctuary and as profaning the Lord's holy name and such an offender was to be stoned and if the people did not take the initiative to stone him the Lord himself would set his face against this offender and against his family and cut them off which seems to indicate that the Lord would prematurely sort shorten the life of such one. This was serious. This was sin against the Lord. It was a combination of idolatry and murder. And then in verse 6, we have the punishment for seeking out mediums and spiritus, which is violation of the law from back in chapter 19, verse 31. In this case, we're told that the Lord himself would set his face against the person and cut them off. And then verses 7 and 8 follow up with this call to holiness. As we've seen in recent weeks from chapter 19, Again, the Lord sanctifies his people. It is he who makes them holy. And therefore, because of this, his people were to actively set themselves apart from evil to be holy as he is holy. They're to keep his statutes and not bring in defilement upon themselves. Because they've already been separated and made holy to the Lord, they must not, therefore, turn back to the ways of wickedness and bring defilement upon themselves. In verse 9, we have the, the penalty for the cursing of Father or mother, which is violation of the law, is given in chapter nineteen, verse three, and the penalty is death. He who curses father or mother, we are told has uh, brought his blood guiltiness upon him, his blood is upon his own head, and then verses ten through twenty one contain the penalties for uh, for sexual deviance committed in violation of the laws of chapter eighteen, and as you'll notice, the penalties here are not all the same. the sins are different from one another, different levels of heinousness, and therefore the penalties are different. And so you have the death penalty prescribed for both parties in adultery, verse 10, for both parties in the case where a man lies with his father's wife, verse 11, for both parties in the case in which a man lies with his daughter-in-law, verse 12, for both parties in the commission of homosexual intercourse, verse 13, for all three parties in the case where a man takes a woman and her mother in verse fourteen. In that case, uh, you have a uh, an exceptional penalty in that the bodies of the offenders were to be burned. And then in verses fifteen and sixteen, bestiality, whether committed by man or woman, was to be punished with death, both for the human and for the animal involved. And then, if you look to uh, to verses uh, seventeen uh, through twenty-one, especially. Uh, especially after the, uh, the first one or two instances there, that the penalties shift a little bit. And so the penalty uh, of incest between a brother and sister was, uh, was that of being cut off seemingly, seemingly by death. And the, the language there used in the middle of the verse, which defines the situation as one in which, quote, he sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, is thought, uh, is thought by some to indicate the, the mutual consent of, of the relationship. In other words, this is not just one party taking advantage of the other. There, uh, the, the language used here seems to, seems to indicate mutual consent of both parties to the relationship. And uh, the, the same penalty uh, for that is applied uh, to the case in verse 18, a man lying with a woman during her menstrual period. Now, I spoke at greater length on this, this issue of relations during menstruation back uh, during the Sermon on Leviticus 15, and so I don't intend to, to rehash here. If you, if you have uh, questions about that and you weren't here, I'd encourage you to, to go back and listen to the Sermon on Leviticus 15. It's, it's posted on, on the website, and there's audio recording there. In, uh, in verses 19 through 21, then the penalties become lesser. Verse 19, the penalty for sleeping with an aunt who is related by blood is that both will bear their guilt. Verse 20, the penalty for sleeping with an uncle's wife, that is an aunt related by marriage, is that they will bear their sin and be childless. And then in verse 21, the penalty for sleeping with a brother's wife is that both would be childless. Now, obviously, verse 21 raises the question about the the issue of leveret marriage in uh, the case... Uh, where a man had died and his brother was commanded to, to take his wife and raise up seed so that the dead man's name would not be blotted out from Israel. The law for, for levirate marriage is given in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10. Now there are a couple of theories that I'm aware of to reconcile the law here, chapter 20, verse 21 of Leviticus, with the law for leveret marriage in Deuteronomy 25. By far the most common view, and in my estimation the most likely, is, that, is the view that the law of Deuteronomy 25 in regard to leveret marriage is an exception to the law here. That is an exception in which there are two conditions. First is that the husband of the woman is dead. The man has died. And the second is uh, The second condition is that there are no offspring, and that when those two conditions are met, then the, the brother, next of kin, may, may marry the woman uh, sinlessly and raise up, raise up seed for his deceased brother. The second view that I'm aware of is, is that of Calvin, who views the reference to a brother in the Levirate Law of Deuteronomy 25 as that of a kinsman more broadly, not... Sons in the same family, but a cousin, second cousin, etc., who may marry the woman and raise up seed. And on Calvin's view, then even the the Leverett marriage law of Deuteronomy twenty five is not an exception to the law here. In uh, in Calvin's view, this this law here is absolute, and therefore brother of the levirate law must be kinsman more more broadly speaking. Now, again, I think the uh, The most common view, and I think the most likely, is that the law of Deuteronomy 25, when you have those two conditions met, one, that the husband is dead, second, that there are no offspring, then there's an exception to the law here of verse 21. Now, what follows in 22 through 26 is a call to holiness. Though, obviously, Leviticus was given to the people, the the laws were given, while the people were still... In the wilderness before they had entered the promised land. Yet these laws were given to the people in view of the fact that they would possess the land. They're to possess the land as a gift and grant from the Lord. He has separated them from the peoples. They're not to follow the, the customs of the nations. They're to be holy to the Lord. And a part of that separation from the nations as seen in verse 25. Was to be the distinction between the clean and unclean animals. And we, we spoke of that at length back Uh, in our time in chapter 11. And then verse 27 completes the chapter by requiring that a man or woman who was a medium or a spiritist was to be stoned. They had brought their blood upon themselves by their action. And so what we have here in this chapter largely are civil penalties which were to be executed by the nation of Israel upon evildoers of various kinds, and therefore now may be as good a time as any to discuss what relationship, if any, the civil laws of the Mosaic law should or should not have to nations in the present time. Now there is a belief known as theonomy, which holds that the civil law of Moses ought to be the civil law of nations. That name, theonomy, comes uh, from the word theos, meaning God, and namas, meaning law, so theonomy, God's law. Those who hold to such a position would advocate for the wholesale implementation of Mosaic civil laws into the laws of the nation where they live. Uh, A man named uh, Greg Bonson, who lived from 1948 to 1995, was one of the main formulators of theonomy, at least in its modern incarnation. Bonson described theonomy as, quote, the abiding validity of the law of God in exhaustive detail. But I think Bonson's description is a bit of an overstatement even for him in, uh, and for those who adhere to the theory. Theonomists would not hold that the ceremonial laws have abiding validity in exhaustive detail. And so they were... Nonetheless, being selective, despite uh, laying out that uh, they held to the abiding validity of the law of God in exhaustive detail, there was uh, some selectivity uh, nonetheless. Uh, but as a general rule, a theonomist wants to see the moral and civil laws of the Pentateuch as the law of the land in which they live. Now, such a view would, uh, generally in our terms, we would say put one pretty far on the right, on the political spectrum. Not to say that all who are on the right are theonomists, but I think we could say that those who would adhere to theonomy would be, would be put pretty far on the right in political terms. And uh, and so a different view uh, from theonomy is what is called theocracy. A theocratic view of the state is the belief that the civil government not only has authority over commandments 5 through 10 of the 10 commandments, but also commandments 1 through 4 as well. That is, that the civil magistrate has the authority to suppress idolatry, blasphemy, Sabbath-breaking, etc. And so theocrats are, are different from theonomists in that uh, in that theocrats would not see the necessarily, uh, the necessary implementation of all of the Mosaic civil law as the law of the land. But nevertheless, a uh, theocrat or one who held to some kind of theocratic position would nevertheless see it as the job of the magistrate to, uh, to uphold the first four commandments in, in some form or fashion. Now, historically speaking, the magisterial reformers of the 16th century, their successors in the 17th century were theocratic, but were not theonomic. The Reformed Confessions and the 1689 Baptist uh, Confession explicitly reject theonomy. So the language of the, the 1689 Confession in chapter 19, paragraph 4, puts it this way, to them, that is the nation of Israel, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now, by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. Now, what does all of that mean, right? So, there's a, there's a modern English version of the 1689 Confession which puts it this way, and hopefully this will uh, make a little more sense. And so, he says, God also gave the people of Israel various judicial laws, which ceased with the end of their nation. No one is now obligated to keep these laws that were given to them. Today we should only use the general principles communicated by these laws. And so, uh, and so what, the, uh, what the 1689 confession following the, uh, following the Westminster Confession on this point would say is that the civil laws expired with the nation of Israel. And so we don't need to, to implement them wholeheartedly into our civil legislation, but... We should be willing to at least glean some principles from the civil laws of Moses. Now, what uh, what does this mean? Well, one uh, one theologian from uh, from the Reformed sixteenth uh, seventeenth century put it this way. He said, "As the ceremonial law is concerned with God, the political or the civil was concerned with neighbor." In those matters on which it is in harmony with the moral law and ordinary justice, it is binding upon us. In those matters which were peculiar to that law and prescribed for the promised land or the situation of the Jewish state, it has no more force for us than the laws of foreign commonwealths. In other words, uh, what, what this writer was saying is that if, uh, if the civil laws seem to be peculiarly applied to, to Israel, then there's, there's no, no force of them that, that should apply to us any more than we need to look to any other nation to apply their laws to us. But what he is saying is that where there are matters in which the civil law is in harmony with the moral law and with issues of ordinary justice, he went so far as to say that it is binding on us. Well, we can, we can think about that. Now, uh, Baptists in our country have generally neither been theocratic nor Theonomic think, liberty of conscience, religious liberty. Um, this has gone to uh, to such an extent that, for good or for ill, uh, in recent years, uh, one Baptist group went to bat uh, for a, uh, a group of Muslims for the purpose of a, uh, kind of lobbying for them to be allowed to build a mosque. It's worth pointing out, though, that Baptists in Britain have not always have not always taken that line. John Gill, for instance, argued that. Kings are the guardians of both God's laws and man's laws and that Christian kings had a duty to punish violators of both tables of the law. That was Gill's position. He said this. He said, They are to discountenance and suppress impiety and irreligion and to countenance and encourage religion and virtue. Civil magistrates are appointed for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. They are to discourage vice and vicious persons. A king by his eye, the sternness of his looks, and the frowns of his countenance should scatter away evil and evil men, and these being removed from him, his throne will be established in righteousness. Kings are the guardians of the laws of God and man, and Christian kings have a peculiar concern with the laws of the two tables, that they are observed and the violators of them punished as sins against the first table, idolatry, worshiping of more gods than one and of graven images, blaspheming the name of God, perjury and false swearing, profanation of the day of worship, and those against the second table as disobedience to parents, murder, adultery, theft, bearing false witness, etc., most of which under the former dispensation were capital crimes and punishable with death, though the punishment of them, at least not all of them, may be inflicted, with that may not be inflicted now with that rigor as then, yet are punishable in some way or another. And so by now you may be wondering, where's all this going? Where, where, where am I going with all this? Well, here's the deal. I'm not a theonomist. I don't think that under the best of governments, a nation would automatically incorporate the civil laws of the Pentateuch into the law of their land. I do think that the civil laws contained in the Pentateuch, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were unique to national Israel as far as being divinely binding. But I would say this also, that we would do well to think long and hard in supposing that a nation were acting unjustly if they had civil laws in regard to some of these things that are more rigorous and the laws that we have here in our land. Now, why do I say that? How can I say that? Well, I say that because even though these laws and their necessary enforcement has expired with the nation of Israel, these laws, as given, were not unjust. These laws were good. These laws were given by God himself. And though the strict penalties were severe and strict we should be quick to add that they were not too strict and that the penalties were not too severe. How could they be? How could any person who believes that these laws came from the mouth of God himself say that they were too strict, that they were too severe, or that they were unjust? If God can command Adam and Eve about a tree in the garden and say that on the day you eat of this fruit, you shall surely die, how is it too much for God to say if you sacrifice your offspring to Molech you shall die. How is it too much for the God who says that to say, if you commit adultery, you shall die? Now again, let me be clear. I'm not saying that a nation needs to necessarily establish the death penalty for adultery or incest or homosexuality or bestiality. But again, I say these laws were not unjust. One writer uh, commented well, I think, that uh, he put it this way. He said, the characteristic which pervades the judicial laws of Moses is that of justice. The giving to every man according to his deeds, that is, the desert of his deeds, without reference or with a very subordinate reference to the prevention of crime or the reformation of the criminal. This law knows nothing of that sickly sentimentalism which sympathizes with the criminal instead of sympathizing with virtue which has tears to weep over the murderer, but none for the murdered man or the murdered law. It knows nothing of an Epicurean utility which can calculate the value of an innocent life that has been sacrificed, or helpless virtue which has been trodden down under the heel of oppression. But it responds to the original, unperverted, moral instincts of our nature, the instinct of resentment, of indignation, of wrong as wrong, the feeling that the sinner deserves to be punished for his sins, and whatever the consequences of his sins may be to others. Now, my grandfather had a one-word expression. He would say, yeeks, yeeks. Talk about criminal justice reform. I think that we may have become somewhat anesthetized to what real justice sometimes requires. We live in a time and place where we are used to duly convicted criminals getting a slap on the wrists and going back out and perpetrating further crimes. This is is not the way things have always been. Uh, One commentator from Olden Times was commenting on verse 15 in the chapter, and he said, "...the beast was killed as an instrument of the crime." Just as a forger of deeds is hanged with his pen and counterfeit seals, and a conjurer with his magical books and characters. There were times and places where forgers were hung, where people who were conjuring, dealing in witchcraft, spiritists, that kind of stuff were dealt with as capital offenders. The laws of lands used to deal with folks more sternly and more strictly than they often do now, and I think living as we do in a, a much more lax situation than historic Israel, in a much more lax situation than much of world history has been. I think we would do well to uh, to sit back and think before we pontificate to other nations that actually do criminalize some things that are criminalized here and. Criticize these nations and say, well, they need to get on board and learn about human rights or the image of God or whatever else we might say. Before we do anything of the sort, we ought to grapple a little more seriously, I think, with the civil law of Moses. Again, it's not, not necessary that nations adopt these civil ordinances as their laws. But again, these laws are not unjust. These are not barbarous monstrosities of justice. They came from him whose throne is founded on righteousness and justice. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Lord says this to His people. This is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. The Lord commenting on the statutes and judgments which He gives to the people and what the other nations would say. Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning verse 5, we see this. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God uh, is to us whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous, as this whole law which I am setting before you today. And so as we reflect on the on the issue of, of justice and how justice was carried out in the civil law of Moses and we see how soft sometimes legal systems of nations can be, what this should all do for us personally is point us to our great need for a savior. Maybe... We have not committed a sin in violation of the the Mosaic civil law, but we have certainly violated the moral law as contained in the law of Moses. And as such, we deserve to die. We deserve to go to hell. This is what what justice demands. But thanks be to God that in his word He's not only given us his law, which condemns us, which convicts us of sin, he has also given us the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ is came into the world so that we might be forgiven, that we might have eternal life, that we have sinned, that we have brought eternal death unto ourselves, yet in Christ there is forgiveness, there is life, there's hope. And so may we all run to Christ in faith and find forgiveness and eternal life in him. And may God give us wisdom. The issue of civil polity and civil law is not an easy one, and I don't stand here and profess to have all of the answers to set out before you tonight. But we need to be thoughtful, we need to be careful, and we need to recognize that these laws were not unjust. And though they were very rigorous, nevertheless, God was not doing an injustice to his chosen people when he gave his word to them. Please pray with me. Our Father, we Know that we ourselves are sinners, that whether we have or have not brought upon ourselves death, according to Leviticus chapter 20, we have certainly deserved death, and not only physical death, but also eternal judgment from you by our sins. I certainly have, and everyone in this room has as well. And Lord, we ask that you would help us. We ask that you give us wisdom as we grapple with the issue of, of civil law and think about what is, what is wise and best for, for our nations today. And Lord, we ask that you would help us in seeing what justice demands, that it would help us to see the guilt that we have brought on us and that we would be quick to flee to Christ, that we would be quick to point others to Christ because he's our only hope because we have brought sin and death upon ourselves, but we give you thanks that you've given us Christ, a Savior, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. We give praise, we give thanks to you. In Jesus' name, amen.